having these two at the time giants, um, I had the book David and Goliath on my desk, and I would look at it every day, knowing it was like we are going to win this. I know we're going to win. So that was really a lot more scary than if we were all alone in the category. What is up, food marketing people? Welcome to episode number 36. On the show today, we've got Kate Weiler, co-founder of Drink Maple, and we are talking about being the champion of your own new category. Kate's Maple Water is now sold in over 12,000 stores, which has taken years of grit, passion, and in her words, blissful ignorance to make happen. As you'll hear from Kate, there are a lot of pros and cons to creating a product that's really in the first of its kind in the category, especially as a startup bootstrapping it to the top. Kate's got hustle and is a wealth of information about entrepreneurship and marketing, and you're going to learn a lot from this episode. Today, you'll hear why grit outweighs experience as a CPG startup founder, what it takes to go from one store to over 12,000, how to tactically use a small budget when educating consumers is your biggest hurdle, and plenty more. Kate has some hilarious stories of early days and lessons learned the hard way, which I think you're really going to enjoy. So let's go on and get after it. Welcome to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast, where we talk marketing, branding, and social media with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. So Kate, welcome to Food Marketing Nerds. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So can you tell our listeners just a, a little bit about your background, uh, maple water, and, and how you really got started? Absolutely. So in 2013, my now business partner and I, we were doing an Ironman triathlon in Mont-Tremblant in Canada and stumbled on a very small manufacturer's maple water and really had no idea that was coming straight from the tree was this natural hydration and new maple syrup, obviously, but didn't know that maple sap was actually a water consistency and full of nutrients and can be consumed as a functional beverage. And we were both coconut water drinkers, but really were dumbfounded why, as a country, we were shipping coconuts from across the world for this natural single ingredient hydration, but we also weren't utilizing our local resource that was in our backyard with maple trees. So, Decided to look into it a little bit more, bought the product, loved it, and hydrated with it for the race, and realized there had been a research study done by University of Rhode Island on the nutritional components of maple water, and there was primed to be a functional hydration beverage. And then I uh, came back to the States, and it was a couple months later, and then just decided that really the people would like it as much as we did. So we decided to throw ourselves into the industry and start Drink Maple. And this was in 2014 that we launched in about 10 stores. And uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind (laughs) to now. And three years later, we're in uh, upwards of soon to be probably 12,000 stores. Wow. And so before starting Drink Maple, what were you doing in your career and what led you to, to actually wanting to start your own business? So I wasn't looking to start my own business. I started my career at a college in information technology sales. So I was selling hardware and software for a very large technology company. And I was doing that for years and met a lot of great people. But really, it was after my first Ironman, I decided that you know I was so focused on this goal of my Ironman and it was over. And then I realized I was, really faced with what I was doing every day in my job. And I realized I just wasn't passionate about hardware and software. And I didn't want to wake up at the age of 30, which to me was old at the time, (laughs) Um, and be just upset and going through the motions with a career and 
be doing something that I just wasn't passionate about just because it was comfortable. And so I decided to quit my job. I um, went back to school. I did a lot of reading and I was doing a lot of yoga and trying to figure out what really I was going to do. And it was around the time that uh, Michael Pollan's book, In Defense of Food, came out. And that was one that just really stuck with me. I started doing a lot of reading and realized there was just so much about our food system that was dictated by the government and by the different industries and realized that I really had a strong passion for nutrition. And so I went back to school, got my master's in nutrition. I also got a holistic integrative degree as well. And then it was around the same time that I was really building out my sports nutrition practice. I was writing a a book and I have a published book called Real Fit Kitchen with Tara Mardigan, the former nutritionist of the Red Sox. And so I was in this world in nutrition and was not looking to start a food company. So I was looking to build out my practice, looking to expand on this book. And um, it just, I was so really thrown back by this maple water thing that I just really was tugging on me that I felt like it was my calling to start this thing. So not necessarily having a business background, what were some of the the first hard learnings? You're like, oh, wow, should have known that when you first started your company. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a whirlwind. Um, we started with just the two of us. Uh, so Jeff and I started and we were doing everything. I mean, it's, I think that you don't really realize the amount of work it takes. Like we were ready to work really hard and we, we had some competitors and we were like, you know what, you know, no one's going to outwork us. And we were both, you know, knew what it took to work hard, but um, just a lot of the unknown. We didn't know anything about the beverage industry. Neither one of us had formal business background, but I honestly don't think that an MBA or having business background is necessary. I think that part of what has made us successful is that we didn't know what we didn't know. I do think it's, important to have some sort of business sense though being able to know your goals and where you're going and what you're trying to accomplish uh, how to figure out distribution and sales and really understanding and having that yearning to learn the business side of things because if if you just really want to make a great product then it's going to be really difficult to have a successful food company i am sometimes of the of the belief that not, sometimes coming into a scenario and not knowing what you're doing is almost to your benefit because you're not you don't have a structured <laughs> approach and you're not jaded and oh that's not going to work. Did you find that to be true at all? Absolutely, I think ignorance is bliss. I think we say if we really knew what we were getting ourselves into, then we probably wouldn't get into it. Uh, but I, I do. I think there it's there comes a point where we got to the point in our business where we needed to find people that knew what they were doing, that we weren't reinventing the wheel, that, you know, had structure and had learned from being in the business and surrounding yourself with those people are really, really beneficial. But I think that part of what has made us successful is that we just had this entrepreneur mentality. We didn't know anything about the industry. We didn't know what we didn't know. Um, we weren't set in our ways. If something didn't work, we changed direction. Uh, if something worked, we'd just go with it. We had a really clean slate on how to approach things. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of value in hiring people and building a team around you with people that have had experience and know what they're doing. But 
from our standpoint, as entrepreneurs without having that background has really served us well. Drink Maple and Maple Water was somewhat of a new company to me. And I actually, when I tried the the water itself, it, it is actually amazing. But for oh, people who, who aren't familiar with the company or the product itself, can you dive into how and where Maple Water comes from and how it's produced? Absolutely. So it's really, we use maple sap and maple water interchangeably. It's really the sap from maple trees. We don't like to use the word sap because people think sticky, sweet, they think pine sap, they think maple syrup. And really we want to be able to share that this is a water consistency. It's light, it's refreshing, it's not high in sugar, it's half of the sugar of coconut water. It's very, very hydrating and very subtle. Um, it's, it's not overpowering like a lot of people think. So it's sourced from maple trees, so it's all from wild growth forests. The sap runs up and down the tree in the springtime really to bring nutrients to the tree to awaken it from winter to spring. That's when we tap the maple tree and collect the water. Um, it's the same infrastructure as maple syrup, so it's been around for hundreds of years. People have been drinking this for hundreds of years, but just what's new about it is being able to put it in a bottle format that will stay pure and, and not going to go bad. So no trees are harmed. So only 10% of the sap is taken from the tree. This is really sustainable. It's actually encouraging uh, responsible forestry because the trees are being tapped, they're being worked. And so they're not going to be chopped down for real estate if, if people are using them. Um, and it's really in everyone's best interest to tap a maple tree that's sustainable because you have to wait about 30 to 40 years before you can tap trees. So you can't just plant one and then the next year have it be available with sap. So there's a functional component. It's, it's like I mentioned, it's been going on um, with the maple syrup infrastructure for a long time. But what's really new is this idea of collecting the maple water from the tree and then bottling it. Interesting. So how much does one maple tree actually yield of water? So we like to say one gallon per tap per tree per day of the maple season. Wow. Some of them have, I mean, some trees have more taps. Uh, If they're larger, older trees, they could have two or three taps. Uh, A lot of them have one tap, but it's, uh, there are a lot of trees to collect that much amount of maple water. So you you mentioned this earlier, the, I guess, kind of the entry perception of, of maple water is that it might taste like exactly like maple syrup. And that was honestly my, my first first thought when I actually bought the first bottle I ever did was, this might be clear maple syrup. I don't really know. <laughs> so w- yeah. how do you actually approach that education piece from a marketing standpoint to to communicate that, hey, this is not just clear maple syrup, even though that would probably taste really good? Yeah, <laughs> um, it's tough. You know, that's one of our challenges is that education and when we first started, we realized we just need to get this in the hands of people and have them try the product. So we started doing and sampling at running races and triathlons and different type of festivals. And we would sample at Whole Foods and stores and really getting people to understand what it is. A lot of times people wouldn't believe us. Like we have a brand video on our website and I was at a show, um, a distributor show last week and, and people just, 
didn't really believe it. I was showing them the video of the water coming through the tree, and that really helps people understand as well. Because um, once they try it and it's subtle and, and they realize, you know, we like to share the stat that it takes 40 gallons of maple water to boil down to make one gallon of maple syrup. And once they wrap their head around that, that's almost like a mind-blown moment and that, you know, grown known all this time what maple syrup is but didn't really understand how it was created so um from a marketing standpoint you know we're we're very scrappy we're we do a lot of grassroots stuff we haven't done any big advertising campaigns which which would help in that education but i you know you need to have the distribution and the funding obviously to be able to do some sort of big type of big market advertising campaign so really it's been all that scrappy grassroots get people to try it and get them hooked on it. Have demos and sampling and, and actually showing up at events where, where people need these types of healthy beverages been your turning point in, in educating consumers then? Absolutely. Yeah, it's made a huge difference. I think if we didn't do that, if we didn't have the opportunity uh, to be at these type things um, and really target that target consumer and, and the early adopters and the influencers um, at these type of events, I think, you know, we definitely wouldn't be where we are today. People, people become loyalists and evangelists and want to share with their friends. So the word of mouth has been really, really helpful, but we found those evangelists really where we can interact with them um, at those events or at stores. So one of the things with demos is that they're extremely effective. It's just one of those things that's kind of difficult to scale and actually, I guess, communicate the same message in the same way that you would if you're not the person there. So I guess, how have you guys approached it? And what have you found to be successful in the way of, of doing demos like that? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that when we first started to is having, you're so used to doing those demos. I mean, my first demo person was my mother. So even <sighs> if she didn't know the answer, she had this proud mom. <laughs> I don't know, it's my daughter's company <laughs> um, type thing. And and we've been able to have good people. We've got a team of brand ambassadors that will sample. Uh, we just did a video, which was really helpful to be able to show. We had a consumer-facing video, but then we had, with our brand ambassador team, we did a video to so they, they could really understand the brand more because, you know, there was a point where I knew everyone and I just don't know everyone now and making sure that that passion gets translated is really important to us and and making sure that they can you know properly answer questions i don't expect them to know everything but um it's good for people to really with this product it's it's a lot different than demoing popcorn i mean they might want to know why the popcorn is different but um people have a lot of questions about you know our brand and our product and and how it's made so it's really important that people that are demoing understand that so I, I noticed you guys have a lot of, of great mentions on in big publications like Wall Street Journal, NPR, like Refinery 20, 29. And is that a concentrated PR effort or is it more getting lucky because you have an interesting product? We have someone on our team that does PR. She does marketing as well. Um, she was focused on PR and then started to um, work for us full time. So she's now wears a lot of different hats. Uh, we all in the com- we're still a tiny team, so we're all doing a lot of different things. So I would wouldn't say that we have a concentrated PR effort right now, even though her background is very strong in PR. But I think you know we have done some outreach. So it's not just you know when I started this company, I thought that people got pressed because 
of, you know, they had a good company or product and you do need to reach out. You do need to sell the company and, and share with what's interesting and things like that. So uh, we do do some of that PR. I, I wouldn't say we put a ton behind it. Um, I think that what has gotten us successful with the PR is that it is so unique and that it is new to a lot of people. So it's something to talk about. I don't know if we would have gotten a lot of the same traction that we've been able to get with a lot of these big publications if we were uh, a Me Too product. I think that having that unique nature has made uh, this press easier to get, so to speak. Yeah, I think the the story, story kind of writes itself when you're creating your own category, which it comes with pros and, and cons of people asking, not understanding what the product is, but then also having that, that first mover's advantage. Exactly. Have you gotten that vibe at all of having that first mover's advantage on, on a product like this? Yeah, so I think um, it's interesting because you're building this awareness and building a category, which is extremely challenging. I don't really wish it on anyone. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, Jeff and I always say that I don't think we would be here if we weren't in the position of creating something unique. So to be successful, especially in beverage, to be successful, you need to have you know great distribution. You need to have a great product, but you need to have connections, experience, you need to have a lot of capital. And, and you, a lot of the, there's so many good products out there, so many good beverages, so many good food products, but a lot of them just don't end up making it because of lacking one of those things. And I think that as two entrepreneurs that were really, really scrappy when we started not having, you know, experience, not having um, millions of dollars behind us when we started, what made us successful was that, you know, hard work, passion, but then also that we had a unique product. So the whole maple water in general, people were picking up on it. You know, we got an article in the Boston Globe three years ago, and then, you know, the Today Show was calling in USA Today and ABC News because it was so new. And I think, you know, if we were doing another coconut water, uh, none of that would have would have happened and it would have been harder to really move forward. So having, you know, having that first mover advantage um, really has, it's, it's brought those challenges, but it also has really enabled us to be where we are today. Was the fact that there was, with the knowledge that there wasn't anything like it on the market, did that scare you at all when you first were exploring the idea of starting the company? So there were three Canadian companies that weren't in the U.S. So there was nothing in the U.S. And then we were cold calling people and we're cold calling maple farmers and, and bottlers and people to make our product. And then we came across another competitor that was planning on launching in the spring. They had been at it for years and had a lot more money than us. It was, um, there, was, there was a lot of money behind it. And so we were really, really, really nervous. Um, and then after that, three months later, another American company announced with this big PR push that they were launching. So here we are <laughs> with no experience, no money. We're making, you know, they're talking about how many bottles we're making. We were making as many bottles as was the minimum of our bottler and could afford. So it was still a good amount because of the type of processing. It was, it was a lot of bottles that we made, but, and it was a lot of money, but it was nothing in comparison to what these other companies were doing. And long story short is that the other two, those companies have since folded and have gone out of business. The supply chain um, and the quality of the product 
it wasn't handled properly and, and had some quality control issues. So that, I think, having these two, at the time, giants, um, I had the book David and Goliath on my desk, and I would look at it every day knowing it was like, we are going to win this. I know we're going to win. So that was really a lot more scary than if we were all alone in the category. Now, kind of going back to that, those early days to where you are now, with you and your business partner starting out uh, with a scrappy marketing budget and looking to get distribution in, in different retail partners, what did that look like as far as the first store to take you guys on to the second and then the growth from there? So we joke about this now. So we just walk into stores. We didn't even have a product. We had a sample of what it tasted like. We had this sell sheet and a binder with this article that was written about maple water, but it was, I don't even remember where it was written. It was some website blog of someone writing about maple water in Canada. So we printed out all the stuff and we would walk in and, and, sell it. And we've got some independence when we started. There's maybe about 10. I think even that's a little bit generous. Um, And then we walked into Whole Foods and, you know, just asked to talk to the buyer. And it was, it was kind of crazy. We, we, we didn't, we just didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't know that what there were, there were brokers. We didn't really know that there was a proper way of category reviews and, and a proper way to do it. And you could get away a little bit more in the independence because they can just say yes on the spot. And so we would have them say yes on the spot. And then, um, you know, we would drive in our cars and deliver the cases and print out an invoice and, and that was it. So there was no distribution. We self-distributed everything. And the biggest is when Whole Foods, it, we, I say finally, I was going to say finally brought us on. It was probably two to two months later. So it just felt like a lifetime at the time. Um, Whole Foods finally brought us on and in their local program in North Atlantic. So we got into about five of the local stores. And then over the next seven months, we were able to expand the region and get into all of them. And, you know, now we have a much more sophisticated infrastructure with brokers and a sales team. And, and it's, we go to category reviews and things like that. But um, I think just being having the skill set of walking into the store, not knowing anything and, and learning through self-distribution has really been helpful as we grow and as you know, we're getting into additional stores and chains. And that is a pretty hilarious story. That yeah. So did you walk in and just ask the... <laughs> ask the person working the, the, the checkout aisle at Whole Foods or what was your pitch when you walked into Whole Foods? Yeah. So there's, um, you know, the customer service desk when you walk in, uh-huh. but not, yeah, not the cashiers, but the customer service. So we would just walk in and say, um, is there someone here that's responsible for buying your beverages? And they're like, uh, the grocery buyer. I said, yeah, sure. The grocery buyer. So then they call the grocery buyer up and we would introduce ourselves and break out the sample and open up our binder and show them. <laughs> that is scrappy, and, but really, really a cool story. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my business partner found the binder the other day. It was probably about a month ago. And he called me and said, I found that binder. Do you remember that thing? And I was like, just bright red with embarrassment. Just like, <laughs> I cannot believe we did that. I mean, it was just insane. It was like, they must have thought, what are you people thinking? <laughs> just um, look how but, far we've come now. <laughs> Exactly. 
that 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 is hilarious. But hey, it it worked and got you guys going in the right direction at least, and you found you learned the ways of of doing it the right way. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's the you know it's the it is those stories. It's being scrappy. It's it's being bold. It's being not afraid to talk to people um, because really that's that's what's going to get you far. You need to be really passionate and really dedicated to making sure that your product gets on the shelf. And so when it comes to the category reviews now, can you walk us through the process of, of how you guys approach that and, and make sure that you guys are doing the best that you can to set yourself up for success? Sure. So category reviews are, it depends. Not every store has them. Some stores have them once a year. Some stores have them twice a year. It's during, usually it's for certain, just as I said, categories. So they're not reviewing every single category at the same time. So they're typically, you, you can find, from a timing perspective, the, the brokers know the category reviews. Um, so if you don't have a broker, then you could find out just word of mouth or asking, you know, another company that's maybe in your same category when it would be. Um, when we were doing category reviews for Whole Foods, when we didn't have representation in those areas, we would just lob in, you know, the one sheet presentations and, and cross our fingers. And we knew that it wasn't really an effective way to do it. Um, but we did it. And we ended up actually getting into one region that way, miraculously, I don't really know how. But um, so now it's sometimes it's in-person reviews where you go and, and you present and you might have 15 minutes, you might have 30, you might have an hour, but um, having a pretty succinct deck of who you are, where you come from, having samples for them to try and then talk about why you're going to do well on the shelf. So you know, we, we work a lot with people that are very familiar with the buyers, what they want to see how long, what do they want to spend their most time on um, so that we can walk in prepared rather than just winging it like we used to. Though we don't really have a problem winging it if, if we need to as well. <laughs> and so you guys started off just true grit and, and passion feeling you guys going into these different stores and grew up to where you guys are at now where it's 12,000 stores, which is really impressive. And now that you're in and have a, a more stable distribution, how are you going about making sure that your, your products are actually turning on the shelves and you're keep, keeping your retail partners happy? Yeah. So it's always a challenge, right? It's, it's when you're in all these, when you're in few stores you can, that are in your area where your family and friends are, that are always shopping in those stores, you have eyes and ears. So if you're out of stock, you know, you can go and, you know, call or stop in and figure it out. Um, when you start to grow and you, and you don't have people in all these places, it's, it's really challenging. So we do have some teams of merchandisers that will go in and, and you'll make sure that we're on the shelf and getting reorders and figuring out because they're, the reality is, is you can sell through what's on the shelf and then it will never get reordered again. And the, you know, you're, you're not getting those movement velocities that you need to see to show the buyer that you're moving. Um, so you can be out of stock in a store and your velocities are going to be very low because you haven't been on the shelf. There's always a challenge of, okay, if you're, you know, put on the shelf and you're not moving, you know, that's probably a worse problem to have. But um, really our, when we, launch in these stores, our biggest challenge and opportunities and make sure that the product is in the store. It is moving. It's not 
out of stock for days at a time, weeks at a time, months at a time that is getting refilled and, and being able to have teams and making sure that the brokers and your merchandising teams in areas where you're doing high velocities um, are in place. I think that it's, you know, with a distribution network that's not DSDs, they're not having that always hands-on touch can be challenging. But um, as we grow the brand and and really able to gain more shelf space and gain more presence, that's what our goal is, is to be able to get that and to be able to continue to grow and, and make sure that we're getting that attention from a consumer who might be walking by. So of the stores that you are currently in, about what percentage is grocery versus convenience? We have very low convenience right now. I would say convenience is probably less than 0.05%. It's very low. So we're really focused on grocery and the natural channel, Whole Foods and Kroger, HEB, Wegmans, those type of stores. That's where you really... You know, once you get to convenience, I think it's a great channel. I think you just need to be prepared to, you know, really support convenience and the brand needs to be known. Um, we do have a lot of success in drug, so we are in drug. And, you know, our goal is to be accessible and to have, you know, this healthful hydration everywhere. So our goal is to be in convenience and to be very, very accessible no matter where anyone goes. But it's just making sure that the timing is right and the progression is right from that natural channel to conventional grocery to drug and to convenience. And so I, I guess at what level does it make sense for a brand like Drink Maple to actually start making the, the leap into, into convenience? Or, yeah, it, or I mean, I think it depends on the brand. For us, it's we are shelf stable, so um, we have a, a little bit of that flexibility where you know it's not like we have to move in a week um, because of that shelf stable nature. So there are some products that have you know sixty day shelf life and inconvenience if it's if it's not turning the way it needs to be turning, that can be challenging because of you know spoiling issues. So um, having a shelf stable product is advantageous for us. I think that it it depends on the brand. It depends on how well-funded you are. I think that, you know, making sure that you've got this strong distribution network that's going to fit your brand. Um, Convenience is primarily through a DSD distribution network. So you need to be ready to be able to support, you know, DSDs are amazing hands-on distributors, but you need to be able to provide the team and the people to support. That takes capital. Um, you, You need to be able to really make sure that your product is moving off the shelf in those channels. So I think there are a lot of brands that have experience in convenience channel, whether they're former entrepreneurs that have success or can jump right in. But for us, we know that, you know, we're going to be there is just right now um, doing a full blown convenience strategy is not in the cards in, you know, 2017. That makes sense. And so if a, if a customer if newly discovers you guys online via either so, social media or one of the, the many publications that you guys are in, is your goal to drive them in stores to benefit that relationship with the retail partners? Or is it capturing the transaction on the website for a higher profit margin? I guess, how do you value those two different transactions? Yeah, I think um, really our goal, I, I like to see people buy it in the store. I, I think it's great if people buy it online. It's not. I would never discourage anyone from buying it online. Um, our Amazon business has really been growing. Our drinkmaple.com own store business has been growing. I think when someone buys it on our personal website, we can have 
you know, a continuous interaction, like we were, we were able to throw in a T-shirt or something like that um, for the person to really show our appreciation for them being a supporter and a fan. But for us, our online business is such a small percentage of our business that making sure that we're showing support in the stores and that it's moving is really important for us. So, like, we're not going to close down our drinkmaple.com store if the product's not moving, but if no one's going to your local Kroger and it's not moving, then then we've got problems. And when it comes to digital marketing, I'm not sure if you guys are actually doing targeted or or organic posts to drive people in stores. Can you speak to that at all? We so we do. I mean, we um, we don't have a full blown you know digital marketing campaign. People will always reach out um, about digital marketing campaigns. The most that we've done at this point is really targeted Facebook, where you know we're doing geo targeting if we launch a new store like with Sprouts to make sure that people in the area and or people that like Sprouts or like the certain store realize that we're there. For us, that's way more in our budget by doing those Facebook geo-targeted or interest-targeted type posts rather than doing a full-blown marketing, digital marketing campaign. I think that um, you know, there's definitely a point that we're going to do that. But at this point in the game, just making sure we're using our capital and funds to be scrappy and know that what we're doing is really driving people to the stores rather than just spending a lot of money and hoping for the best. Counter to that, uh, you mentioned Amazon is is a growing growing piece of the business, and on your website I noticed that you guys have the uh, the Amazon Dash button. Uh, we do, yeah. What's that like getting that set up, and how has that influenced influenced the sales? So the da- you know, the Dash button, uh, it was we did it pretty early. Um, we didn't know, you know, is is this really going to drive a lot? We have a you know pantry type product where people will buy cases and fill their refrigerator or pantry and, and always have it on stock. So that's why we decided to go with it. I think um, the setup for Dash was fairly easy. It, it wasn't too intensive at all. Um, it didn't take a lot of our time. I think if it were really complicated or difficult, we, we wouldn't have moved forward with it. But I think it, it's not, uh, from a sales perspective, it's not you know, knocking our socks off by any means, but um, it's not like, whoa, this like transformed our Amazon business. Um, But it has led to that steady growth of really continuing to grow. I mean, we had our biggest month um, on Amazon last month than we've ever had. So we do, every month we continue to see that grow without really having a full on online sales strategy behind it. Interesting. Part of that, I'm sure, is is building that brand awareness, um, and then people just having that trust, existing trust in Amazon. But uh, when it when it right. comes to to building that brand awareness, I, I noticed that you guys have an uh, athlete ambassador program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, part of a, or a huge part of uh, our culture and and what we're passionate about was triathlon and running and riding bikes and swimming. And so we got cycling kits that a lot of our friends, we have a bit, you know, a large group of training partners and friends that we train with and um, people that work for the company as well. So um, we ended up getting cycling kits and a good amount of us, we sold them on our website and a good amount of us bought them. And so this was, and these are all people I know, they're just my friends. So we post pictures and we post on our social media and then it was, we kept on getting 
inquiries saying, you know, how can I join the team? And we're like, uh, we don't really have a team. This is just, <laughs> you know, these are like my friends <laughs> that just wear the kids. So we just, it, it continued on. We get emails all the time or Instagram posts. And so it wasn't until we added uh, Allison on my team, who was mentioning before, and when she started full-time, she had the PR background. I was like, all right, you're in charge of the Athlete Ambassador Program. <laughs> let's figure this out because people just keep asking. So we took applications in the fall and really wanted people passionate. I mean, it's all there. We have, we have some very fast elite athletes. We have some people that aren't very fast. It's not like we you know, made them submit their mile time or anything like that, but we wanted to make sure they were passionate and very involved in the community. We wanted to make sure that people were out there and they were you know, involved in that whatever athletic pursuit they were doing and not just a weekend warrior or you know, casual type person, but it didn't mean that they needed to be running, you know, some sub three marathons, by any stretch of the imagination. So we took applications and then we have different levels of ambassadorship based on just their involvement and, and, and what they're doing. So we don't pay anybody. I mean, like I said, we're very scrappy with our funds. We don't have budget to be paying athletes. Um, we don't have any you know, professional sponsored athletes like a NFL or NBA or anything like that. So the perks are really through product supporting um, through events they're doing, providing discounts on product, providing some swag, some discounts on swag, and really making sure that you know we're supporting them, but also that we're not you know cutting a check for thousands of dollars because the budget's just not there for that. And how time consuming is it to manage the ambassadors, or is it kind of a self managed program once you are an ambassador? Uh Allison on my team, she spends time. She definitely spends a lot of time. Um, we have a, you know, a, a lot of it, it's and it's all good. I think that is people are really passionate and want to be involved. So they're asking questions and and we've done ambassador parties and get-togethers and and we're making sure that people are being supported if they're going to a race and and you know we have like people that go and hand out product at events that we sponsor. But if we're not sponsoring the event, a lot of the ambassadors will want to hand it out on their own and, and just do kind of like a pop-up, whether it's out of their car or, or whatnot, um, or get a table and hand it out and just do a really scrappy like hydration station. So the we have about 120 ambassadors. So it's, it's a lot to manage. Um, people are really involved. So I think I, I would rather have it be that way than than the opposite side of things. And I, obviously the, the overarching goal is, is brand awareness with this ambassador program. Are there any specific metrics that you're looking for in regard to the, this program that you would qualify as a success or as a lot of time spent on something? From the ambassador program, we don't necessarily have metrics or goals that we set in place. We really just did it in the sense of People kept on asking, so why don't we roll it out? At, at this point, we're going to continue to to do it just because the engagement. I think that you know our metric is probably more by engagement of social media. Yeah, it's tough because that that's such a. I mean, so many brands have been built on great ambassador programs, but it is such a difficult thing to quantify the actual return in just a, a really black and white case, but. Uh, it's clearly working for you guys. 
It is. It is. It's very difficult. And, and even, I mean, as you mentioned too, because you know, we can see we have codes for online sales and you can't determine it even by that because as we were talking about before, the goal is really to driving people to the stores to buy it. So what, what's next on the horizon for, for Drink Maple? So we've got some exciting things coming out um, that we will be announcing at the Fancy Food Show in about a week and a half. So some extensions there. So I'm really excited about that. I think we were a little bit slow to introduce extensions, but just because we really want to make sure it felt right for the brand. Um, But that's all happening very soon. So really, we realized that being able to gain that shelf space and that presence and when you don't have, when you walk in and you see all those products, if you don't have that billboard and space, it can be really detrimental to getting the brand and getting lost in the mix. And then we've got a lot more. We're expanding heavily through CVS starting uh, in July. We're expanding uh, some of our Whole Foods presence. We're definitely adding a lot more retailers. We're adding Shaw's, which is a big one in this region, which we're excited about. We just launched a market basket in this region, which we're excited about. Um, And then Sprouts was a couple months ago, which really got us a lot of presence on the West Coast, which was great. So just continuing to add that distribution, continuing to add innovation, and then dreaming up what's uh, the next thing. We have, uh, we've got three questions that, that we ask each of our guests. Is there anything that you've learned over the course of, of your current role? Actually, I'm sure there's plenty, but is there anything that you can think of that, uh, that you wish you could have gone back and, and told yourself right when you were starting the company? Oh. I guess what would be most valuable? Yeah, most valuable. I think that this is a marathon and not a sprint. I think we've definitely, we have run ourselves into the ground a lot. Um, we work very, there's a fine line, right? I mean, for me, it was that this is a marathon more than a sprint. I think if somebody is a little bit less motivated or, or, or less of a self-starter, then I would give the opposite, being like, you need to make sure that when you start, like you go full on so that you can you know, move and have a successful product. Like you're either you're in or you're out. Don't wait around. But we, when we got into this, it was like, oh, we are fully in. Um, so we had the the challenge of, and we still do. I mean, just that we, you know, we work a ton. Um, there's little sleep at the beginning. And I think the first year I look back and there was a lot of things that I, I just wasn't taking care of myself in the way that um, was mentally stable for me. I, mean, I like wasn't running anymore. I just, I wasn't really, I was just working and not sleeping and just needing to take care of myself. I realized like even carving out, you know, if it's 30 minutes a day to do my workouts or to take a quiet moment was really, really important. And I continue to tell that myself that now. Hmm. It's like the very activity that I started this company to supplement, this company is preventing me from doing. So what is, what's yeah, going on here? Exactly. <laughs> So is there a piece of advice that you could think of that you've been given that you draw strength from when times get tough? You know, I think that it's just, you know, there are going to be ups and downs and you know, nothing ever is going to go always smoothly. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs and just making sure, you know, you're going to come out of the other, you know, when, like, I guess when you're going through hell, keep going because, 
it's going to work out if you can, you know, continue to go. Um, my dad sent me um, a Teddy Roosevelt quote a couple of weeks ago, and I and he's had it on his desk for 30 years, and it's one of those things too that I I had never even seen it, and I, things weren't were just I was exhausted. We were in a bit of a hell of a week, and he knew that, and he sent it to me. Is that the uh, the man in the arena quote? Yeah, that's, you got it. That's got to be my one of my favorite quotes of all time. Teddy Roosevelt's got a yeah. ton of a ton of good ones. Mm-hmm. But. So, it was like perfect. You know, I knew the quote, but I think he texted it to me and it was just perfect timing because I was like on the brink of tears and it was just a really, really challenging week. And, and he was like this, and he didn't even know that. I mean, he was, I was in another city, had no idea. I hadn't communicated any of that. And it came up on my phone. Um, it was just like, I was thinking of you and this has been on my desk for 30 years. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so fitting right now. And it really is. And everyone can relate to that. You read that and you're like, yeah, I'm the man in the arena. That's me. Yeah. But it is such a good quote. But is there a is there a book that you like to recommend to people or that's helped you in in your career as an entrepreneur? One of my favorites is Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk. I think I it's a little I don't want to say it's outdated now, but I read it so long ago now. His books are great and I read that right when we first started. I wasn't even you know in the uh really full blown into the the business at that point. Good to Great's always a good one as well, but I think the one that really I, I look back on is Crush It. Yeah, Gary, Gary Vee's got some good books. He's a motivational, smart dude. He definitely knows his yeah. marketing. So, well, definitely. well, thank you so much, Kate, for coming on the coming on the show. And it was really interesting get to getting to hear your perspective and and hear the stories of how you guys are grinding it out and really building the company to where it is today. So, appreciate it again. Thank you. This has been so fun. And uh, where's a good place for people to to find out about Drink Maple? drinkmaple.com our website and then we're also Instagram, Facebook and all those good things but you can we have our video and uh, all of our social links right on the website perfect well thanks again Kate alright thank you so much thanks for listening to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast for interview transcripts or to download your free social media ebook check out foodmarketingnerds.com